Hi everyone, how are you? Hey, nice to see you, Katharina, Jamie, Serena. Hello, I opened the room earlier. Oh, go ahead. I'm just hi, hi everyone. Yeah, me too. Hi everyone. Hey. Yeah, I opened the room earlier because um, our guest speaker asked for being there at 45. So just in case I open it earlier. Hope everyone's good, having a good day. It went by so quick. Yes, right, it's already Tuesday. <laughs> Crazy. Almost June. It is crazy. Almost June is even crazy. Christmas presents, Katharina. Hi, James. I said better you? start. Oops, sorry. Okay. Hi, Doctor. Can you hear us? Uh, just to remind you, the unmute button is um, all the way. Oh, okay. I can hear you, and now you can hear me. Okay. Yep. We can hear you. Yes. Hello, Dr. Tour. Hello. Hello, Dr. Welcome back. Nice to speak to you again. Oh, thank How you. How are you? Good. Good. And so, Katerina, I can just keep my iPad just like this, and, and then I have my slides on my laptop and just run off my laptop to read them off and just go from one to the next, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah, everyone will um, scroll through the slides themselves. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that works okay. perfectly. Okay. All right. Well, this is a new mode for me. Yeah, thanks for trying it out. We really mm -hmm. appreciate it. We are honored. <laughs> you tried it out with us. So. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yep. I hope you're enjoying um, your day. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I'm just catching up. I just got back from out of the country. I was in two weeks in Israel, and uh, uh, doing a bunch of work there. And so, I'm just uh, digging out from being away for two weeks. Oh yeah. Uh are you good with jet lag or is it for me? It's uh, yeah. Usually it only takes me about a day to recover. So I'm, 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 a, I'm okay on the jet lag. It's, uh, it's just the, the workload. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, as you know, our work doesn't go away. It just, it just piles up when we leave the office. Definitely. Yeah. It just piles up. <laughs> the, I have issues with that, like, especially when I come back um, from that side of the earth, like from Europe or... Dr. Tour, hello. What, what part of the country were you visiting or were you working in, in Israel? Oh, um, I had a meeting up in the Galilee, actually in Nazareth, in the southern Galilee region. And then my daughter lives in Jerusalem, so I spent some time with her, and I have a bunch of companies in Tel Aviv, so I was checking those out as well. Oh, that's fantastic. My daughter um, went to school in, in Israel. She lived in Jerusalem for a mm -hmm. while as well, and I went and got to visit her, and 
that's a beautiful part of the country we're in and and around Galilee it's just so green and it's so different yeah I uh, I honestly didn't didn't visit anything specifically I have uh, I have a, also have a son-in-law and two granddaughters there. So any time that I wasn't working, I was just with the grandchildren, uh, uh, taking them to buy whatever they wanted, as much ice cream as they wanted, as many toppings as they wanted. And so that's what I was doing with my time. They, they must love it when you visit. <laughs> <laughs> I think they do. I, my daughter gets a little bit concerned, but... Um, that's 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 a, a grandfather's prerogative, I think. Absolutely. Do they call you anything special? Being your grand, as like your granddad or anything. They special? call me Papa. Ah, I, I call my granddad Papa. That's, oh, that's okay. funny. That's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. still do it. I, I yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, and I. In our family, my daughters call their grandfather Papa. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and then I had a yeah, bunch of meetings there. So I've seen the country enough times that I, I don't, I don't really, I just have a desire to, I, I don't have a desire to see, see things anymore. And I've seen enough rocks and enough, enough churches and enough uh, uh, synagogues and stones and walls and so I've, I've seen all that I want to see over there. Now I just go for people. Yeah. yeah. And was it, was it, I mean, obviously it was fruitful because you got to spend time with your family, but your business and everything was, yeah, were you able to? Yeah, yeah, the, the meeting was very fruitful because it was a meeting on, on uh, the problems in origin of life and evolution. And I was able to really take on the community with how clueless scientists are in the origin of life and just see the, people face to face and take them on head on. So I'm a nonconformist. And uh, so I, I challenged the community. And then um, and I had a, uh, I visited a bunch of the companies that, that were launched from, from uh, things in our laboratory and visited with investors and CEOs and things like that. And, and then I visited uh, some politicians in the Knesset, and um, and yeah, yeah. Actually, the meetings the meetings were very, very fruitful. Yes. Well, my That's ears certainly thing. picked up, perked up when you said origin of life. I like to play around in that space too. Yeah, yeah. That's a very confusing thing to think about how life started. I'm a river shore clay wet dry cycle enthusiast myself. Oh well, yeah, that has that has huge problems as well. <laughs> Nobody has made the four classes of compounds, the amino acids, the carbohydrates, the nucleotides, and the lipids in in homochiral form uh, using using prebiotic chemistry. Nobody well, I got some thoughts on it. that. <laughs> okay, and 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 um, it's not homochirality. Now we know is not something that could have evolved later. Uh, because there's something called chiral-induced spin selectivity that shows that if you don't have homochirality to begin with, you get backscattering of the electrons, and uh, 
And so that's why we don't burn up. Our, our brains only use 10 watts, blow out 10 watts of heat. So, um, uh, and, and the, the, reason, the reason for that is that it matches the spin of the electron to the chirality of the material that it's going through. And we don't know how to do synthesis like that, but that's the way biology does it. The other thing is the interactome arrangement. Just a single yeast cell has 10 to the 79 billion combinations of just protein-protein non-covalent interactions that need to be aligned for information transfer. The number of elemental particles in the universe is 10 to the 90. So we're talking about huge, crazy high numbers. And that's just protein-protein. That's not protein DNA. That's not, that, that's not uh, any others. And so you have to have that for electrostatic interaction. So you can have all the wet-dry cycles you want and try to string, string molecules together. If you just have six glucoses, six glucoses can be hooked together over one trillion ways. So, you know, these numbers are just staggering. And if you, if you, get, if you get a carbohydrate arrangement wrong, the cell dies. Um, so, yeah, it would be yeah. it would be such a blast to engage with you on on these topics. Um, I'm I, I hope we can have you back <laughs> for an origin of life discussion. Um, mm -hmm. The what the carbon negative. I, in fact, I remember seeing the the graphene work some time ago, um, but I I was uh, involved in some efforts for carbon negative. Um, materials production and uh, sequestration. So I'm really mm -hmm. interested in the, the topics you have today. Mm -hmm. But uh, origin of life, I, I certainly like to go off in the weeds on that one. Yeah, yeah, well, so. Um, you know, Doctor, I was personally grabbed with what you said there about the brain, what is it, say, was it 10, did you say ten kilowatts? 10, ten, ten watts, watts, only ten we watts. Put out. Yeah, yeah. All, wow. all um, yeah. When you brought that up, I, I always have wondered um, why, because I don't know anything about this topic at all, but I did always wonder, like, why do why do we have only a certain current, but I'd, I'd never heard it measured, like, 10, 10 watts before, and I wondered what would it be like if we actually functioned with, say, 12, would we, would we think better, would we move better? Or, well, when know? I say 10 watts, you know, these are approximate numbers, so I'm sure 12 would probably be okay, but... but um... The, the, the thing is that, that uh, uh, with the amount of computations that our brain is doing, and if you translate that into silicon, that would be, that would be a rockin' hot chip, man. Really hot. And we could never survive. So, but now we know. I mean, chiral-induced spin selectivity was only discovered about 15 years ago. And now, and then it also tells us why biological reactions are so high-yielding. Uh, we thought it was all based on sterics uh, um, that fit uh, uh, lock and key. And now we know that that's a very small percentage of it. The vast majority I'm, of it I'm making some notes here because I, I'm... Oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry, you, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, it's okay. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just saying, um, I'm, I'm actually making some notes of this now. I, I'm going to look this because I'd love to... I'd love to read more about it. Sorry, if you go, if you go to my you, if you go to my YouTube channel, Dr. James Tour, I have a mm -hmm. nine-hour video on on uh, uh, origin of life, and you know you can start and stop as much as you like, and it covers each of the classes of molecules and all the problems with the origin of life. You'll see it. I, I mean, it, I, I did it in different pieces. It was like fourteen different 
videos, but then I, I, I just pulled them all together and made one big one as well. Uh, you'll see me with an astronaut's helmet on. So that's that's the one you know. It's like nine hours, and it's and a, the thumbnail <laughs> is me with an astronaut's helmet on. But um, uh, you you could hear everything that I just told you is on that video. Okay, that this sounds like a really fun binge watching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, so much. Yeah. It, if you're yeah. ever suffering from if you're ever suffering from insomnia, it's a good thing to watch. Well, luckily not, but it sounds like just fun for fun's sake. And <laughs> until we can um, perhaps make you so comfy that you will be so happy to come back to Clubhouse and, and we get an origin of life moment with you. <laughs> so, okay. Thanks. That's our goal. Okay. Well, happy guest is our goal. My, con my concern isn't that I would be falling asleep, it would be I'd be too alert. I'd have too many questions. <laughs> I'd be too... <laughs> Too engrossed with it, actually. That would be my flaw <laughs> with a nine-hour talk like that. That's amazing. Thank you. I'll have to check it out because um, it really sounds fun to to dive in and discuss different mechanisms for those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we'll start in around one minute. So, um, yeah, thank you for your patience and waiting. Uh, we'll, we'll almost start. And um, yeah, uh, exactly. That's what I wanted to do first. Uh, please, uh, while we were talking about this, please check out um, Dr. Um, Tour's uh, YouTube channel. Um, here I posted the link and um, Dr. James Tui, he's quite a, a great uh, YouTuber. He has like over 30k followers. So uh, yeah, check out his channel and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, pro it's for sure a really interesting um, YouTube channel that you should really check out and um, we will also have most likely this um, recording on there in the future. So if you feel like you want to go back and um, listen again to something that you wanted to check out, remember, um, yeah, the, there's, you know, there will be the recording of this room will also be on this YouTube channel. So. I also did see the clip on your YouTube channel, Doctor, what about the is it the nanobots that would destroy bacteria? Yeah. That looked incredibly interesting. Very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Um, incredibly powerful. Uh, one thing I thought about was please don't let a government own that. <laughs> but it, the, yeah, but there's it, a company around that now. We, we've started yeah. a company around that. Yeah. It's that's quite exciting. Uh, yeah. making progress that especially think that could help the the issue with um bacterial resistance but mm -hmm. anyway i'm going on a tangent we're about to start in a second but anyway mm -hmm. just want to say thank you the, for that it's clearly interesting sure okay i think uh it's time to start thank you everyone for coming and welcome to the science society and a special um thank you uh to dr james tour uh, he's our um, special guest speaker here today. 
uh, talking about his really important and also interesting work um, around using plastic waste for carbon capture. And uh, before we start, let me introduce you um, a little bit and give you a little bit of information. Um, Dr. James Tour is a synthetic organic chemist and he received his Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the Syracuse University and his PhD in synthetic organic and organometallic chemistry from Purdue University. And he did his postdoctoral training in synthetic organic chemistry at the University of Wisconsin and Stanford University. After he uh, was 11 years on the faculty of the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of South Carolina, he joined the Center for Nanoscale Science and Technology at Rice University, where he is currently the TT and WF Chow Professor of Chemistry, Professor of Computer Science and Professor of Material Science and Nanoengineering. His um, research um, areas include nanoelectronics, graphene electronics, silicon oxide electronics, carbon nanovector for medical applications, green carbon research for enhanced oil recovery and environmentally friendly oil and gas extraction, and uh, CO2 capture, lithium ion batteries, water splitting, uh, to H2 and O2, water purification, and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> and a single molecule nanomachine, uh, which include molecular motors and nanocars. And he has developed uh, also strategies for retarding chemical terrorist attacks. And um, he um, he is also a founder and principal of Nano JTAC Consultants LLC and um, performing te technology assessment for prospective investors. And he um, owns different intellectual properties. And um, he, um, yeah, yeah, many awards. And I could go on and on and on, but I want to also uh, give uh, Dr. James Tour uh, some time to answer to some questions and give his presentation. So, uh, Victoria, please go ahead and, and ask your question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So difficult to follow that up. Um, what an exciting list of achievements and, and um, work that you've accomplished Dr. Tour. So Science Society welcomes you and part of our welcome is helping to share you, the researcher, um, the human side of you to our audience. And so what I would like to ask you is if you can reflect on your life and, and that could include your childhood and think if there's perhaps a time, a moment that you remember that you first felt that spark of interest that told you that that um, that you had a particular interest mm. in sciences. Mm. 
can we cannot hear you currently. I'm not sure if it's. Oh, do you oh. want me to begin? Oh yes, please. That was uh, my that was my first question. Yes, I'm sorry. If oh, it didn't... oh, question. I I I, yeah. I I thought you were asking it uh, <laughs> generally in the audience. So, so uh -uh. Okay. That's to you. So yeah. when did I start thinking about science and having a career in science? Well, even not necessarily a career, but thank you because you helping asking me to clarify helps me ask my question more clearly. Okay. It's that I'm interested to know if there was a time in your life that you felt like, yes, science, this is a path I want to take. And that may oh. not be a career path. It could be that I you were you. six years old and you noticed yeah. that you were... Yeah. This was this was you. I got you. I got you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, I wanted to be a New York State trooper. I wanted to be join the state police, and I couldn't get into the academy because I'm colorblind. I don't know if they have that same restriction now, but at the time that was a restriction, and so um, I thought I would study forensic science and just be associated with law enforcement in that way. And my dad said, well, why don't you just get a general degree in chemistry for your undergraduate degree, and then you can specialize more after that. And so what amazes me is that at, a se at, seven, at the age of 17, I listened to my father. And I just went and got a regular degree in chemistry. And then, but in my sophomore year, when I took organic chemistry, I just thought, this is it. I mean, I just fell in love with making molecules. I used to, I, I did all the, 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 the homework problems, and then I would do all the other problems at the end of every chapter that had not been assigned. That's how crazy I was about that subject. Um, thank you. Thank you for reflecting. That's why, well, one reason I love to ask this question is because we get to hear um, the career change or the, you know, the, the path change that we wouldn't have known otherwise that I think happens to people, you know, if you, you're listening to yourself and what is interesting to you. And of course you also listen to your father and thank goodness for him, um, for suggesting that because, uh, law enforcement didn't, didn't, um, take you where you had expected it might. But so then from that point, um, you know, which you were, you were so excited about making molecules. How, how did you find your way to the work that you're currently doing? Okay, so, so my PhD and my postdoc were, were in traditional synthetic organic chemistry methodology and also natural product synthesis. But when I was a graduate student, my, my professor told me, you're not going to be able to have a big career just making molecules. You're going to have to either go the material side or the biological side and apply your skills there. So I always had that in mind. And so when I started my own independent career, um, I started applying the synthetic skills to making molecules for electronics. And it really took off. I mean, it just boomed. And, and um, I got a lot more, more uh, uh, press and notoriety than I deserved. And it was only because I took tools of organic chemistry and applied them to the field of, of uh, electronics where nobody had seen those tools come in before. And, and so that took me a long way. And then we, we also took those materials type ideas and moved them into the biological area. And, and now, now we work across so many domains of material science and biology and 
and, and uh, advanced materials and inorganic uh, uh, materials. So we, we have like, we don't, we don't view ourselves as, as having uh, uh, any one thing. We, we just take what we know and we'll apply it to interesting ideas. And so now, you know, I'm in a stage in my career where I just hire good people. I give them a credit card and I say, make me rich and make me famous. And they do. And, and a little bit of that has to do with you, <laughs> it sounds like. Well, I think we have a debt of gratitude that you, that you did follow your curiosity because although conventional schooling tends to um, separate things into separate disciplines, that you, that you, weren't, you, you weren't bound to that. And, and real knowledge is interdisciplinary. And, and that's that's where you went. And, and so at this point um, in the room tonight, please uh, feel free to begin delivering your, your talk about your work. And sometimes people prefer to have a Q&A after they're finished, or perhaps you would like it to happen along the way, but that's entirely up to you. And so please, um, the mic is yours and we are here to assist in any way. So thank, thank you, you Dr. Tour. Thank you. So, yeah, if, if you could hold your questions to the end, I'll get through this fairly quickly. And uh, um, I think some of your questions might be answered on some of the slides after, that, after where your question arose. So, so uh, hold them to the end, and then I'll answer whatever you like. So on slide number one, it's these, these clean tech advances. It's putting waste plastic to use, flash graphene and carbon dioxide capture. So slide number two says graphene has outstanding properties. Graphene is single atomic sheets of graphite. It's, it's one atom thick. Uh, uh, it, has, it has all these superlative properties. It's, it's conductive, uh, but it's, it's lightweight like, like carbon materials. And, and uh, it's the strongest material known at that level. Uh, uh, most materials don't hold together at one atom thick. It's based on a carbon-carbon bond, which is one of the strongest bonds in the universe. Uh, and it's not just a single bond, it's a bond order of 1.3. And, and so it, and it's, it can go into medical and aircraft and battery textile applications. So it's really big, big, uh, uh, amazing new material. Discovered actually in 1964 by a German man named Boehm. The Nobel Prize Committee didn't know that. He even called it graphene. It was rediscovered in, in uh, I believe it was 2006 maybe. And then in 2010, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded for the discoverers, but the Nobel Committee didn't realize that Boehm had actually discovered this back in the, in the early 60s, 64, I think it was. And Boehm is still alive to this day. He's like 97 years old. Um, sometimes they make mistakes. So it was awarded to two other people, but not Boehm. In any case, um, uh, uh, slide number three, shows flash graphene synthesis and the way we, we discovered, and so, so there's, there's uh, Dewey Long, his picture, he's the one who discovered it, not me, uh, and he put carbon between two electrodes and he put a high voltage across it and uh, a high current and that little graph above that shows the temperature, the temperature heats up to over 3000 Kelvin, so that's that's, uh, that's over 300 degrees, that's, that's about 3,000 degrees centigrade, 3,000 degrees centigrade, and it heats up to that temperature in about uh, uh, two milliseconds. 
uh, uh, just a fraction of a second, and then it cools down so that by 10 milliseconds, it's already all cooled down, and every carbon-carbon bond in there breaks, and then it reconstructs as the thermodynamically most stable system, which is graphene. There's a big flash of light that comes out in the process, and that, that's why we call the process flash graphene. Next slide uh, 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 is slide number four, flash graphene characterization. I know that, that there's probably not too many chemists on the line, but there's different ways of characterizing it. You can look at Raman spectroscopy and you can map that. You can look at X-ray diffraction and transmission electron microscopy. But this is the cleanest form of graphene that anyone's ever seen. And, and uh, uh, because all the, all the heteroatoms, all the non-carbon elements come distilling out in the process. We've made it from carbon black, from anthracite coal. We've made it from calcined coke, which is a petroleum product. We can make it from coffee. Uh, coffee is, is about 40% carbon because it's a carbohydrate, C6H12O6. So it's about 40% carbon. We get about 35% of that possible 40%. So you can even do it from waste food. Uh, because most of what we touch in our lives is carbon. If you look at the waste, that, things that you throw out in your house, it's mostly carbon. Uh, food we eat is mostly carbon. Uh, the reason for that is because we're made out of carbon, and so I'm sure if we were made out of silicon, we'd be eating silicon material. But uh, we're made out of carbon, so we eat carbon things. And, and uh, our cost is about 30 to $35 a ton in electrical energy. That's it. So uh, uh, right now, graphene sells for $60,000 to $200,000 per ton. We can make it from, from very inexpensive carbon sources, even just, just household waste, uh, for $30 a ton um, in electricity costs. No solvent, no water needed. The next slide uh, is slide number five, and it says AB stacked Bernal versus uh, turbostratic graphene. This is the arrangement, the way these stack together. Uh, normally, if you just take graphite and exfoliate it, it's very hard to pull these layers apart because it's, it's, it's uh, very carefully packed. That's what happens sitting in the ground for, for billions of years. But this forms so rapidly that it, it couldn't well pack. And so that's good because now when you put it in composite, it disperses out. And so what you need for a composite when you add a nanomaterial, you have to have two things. You have to have good dispersion. It has to disperse well in the material. And you have to have good interfacial interaction. Good interfacial interaction between, between uh, um, the material, the, the nanomaterial, and the host material. Uh, next slide is slide number uh, six, and it says the laboratory scale up. So this was our first paper, and we scaled it up to one gram, which for a nanolab is a lot. But uh, uh, it disperses very well in solvents. Uh, we could put it in plastics. It strengthened the plastic. It dissolves in all sorts of solvents. And D shows that, that if you add it to cement, you can increase the, com the compressive strength by 35% just by adding 0.1 weight percent. Uh, and you also increase the tensile strength by about 20%. Carbon dioxide uh, formation is 8% of all CO2 emissions come from the making, uh, uh, I'm sorry, making of concrete. So CO2 emissions from concrete are 8%. Uh, of all worldwide uh, CO2 emissions. So, so concrete is a, is a big player in, in generating CO2 because you take metal carbonates, 
you heat it up to 2,000 degrees in a furnace to, and you convert the metal carbonates to metal oxides and you blow out CO2 in the process, plus you had to heat that furnace to 2,000 degrees. And then you add water to it, it's very heavy, you put it on a truck and you cart it off where you want to. So if you can reduce the amount of concrete by 35%, that's a very big deal. That, that would lower the CO2 emissions by 35%. So big deal on that. All right, next slide is slide number seven, and that's a little uh, automated system that my students built. We built that during the COVID shutdown. We were out of our labs for, for uh, two and a half months, and I bought a bunch of 3D printers and a um, uh, bunch of setups for electrochemistry and things like that. And we, we just built this system. I didn't, Dewey did, Dewey Long did. And, and uh, so it's an automated system, so it can just rocket on through. And, and it, you see that big flash there, and then it'll drop that out, and another one comes funneling in, and, and uh, 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 so it's an automated system. And with that, we had to deliver to the Department of Energy. We had a grant where we had to make one kilogram in a 24-hour period of graphene from coal. Uh, uh, and and um, we were able to deliver that um, a two-year grant, we delivered five months early, and we did it not just in 24 hours, we did the 1.1 kilograms in, in 1.5 hours with this automated system, so that really worked. The next slide shows you the progression rate, so you can see the where, that's the history of it. You see where it says COVID closure. That's where there was a, a uh, we were shut down for that period during the COVID shutdown, and you can see that we were we were building this, this uh, we, it was doubling the production rate every nine weeks. So every nine weeks, the production rate was doubling. And we have stayed on that. And you see how we surpassed the Department of Energy goal. And so, and we call this Dewey's Law. He predicted that it would double every nine weeks, and it stayed along that. And what are the advantages of flash graphene? Well, graphene is non-toxic. It's used in several medical applications. It's naturally occurring in the environment. It's agglomerates of the natural mineral graphite. This is slide number nine. Um, it's a terminal natural sink for carbon. Uh, most of the assets that we bring up from under the ground, whether it be oil or coal, uh, they're going to end up in the CO2 cycle eventually. Not this. It has a long geological stability. Uh, it, can, it can be used in composites of all types. Uh, it requires no solvent, no water, no purification. The, the energy costs are 30 to $35 per ton production. And at the current price of graphene, you see there's a huge markup there. And so we started this company called Universal Matter, um, and, and there's the CEO, and Dewey now has, has, has left the lab, and he's, he's a senior scientist there. And they will be at at least one ton production this year, one ton per day, and then they'll be at 100 tons per day in Q4 of 2023. So, so they, they, they keep doing real well on the scale up of this. Uh, that's changing the whole dynamic of the graphene market. We go to slide number 11. How is this an energy play? Why is this important for energy? Well, if you look at slide number 12, where will energy come from in 20 years? Well, right now, what we do is we take methane, and I'm sorry that the, the alignment on some of these things got messed up when I converted it to PDF, but you take methane, you mix it with oxygen, and you make CO2 in water. That's normal combustion that blows out about 80, 800 kilojoules per mole of energy. Uh, but what you can do is you can take methane and you can just pull the hydrogens off it and get a carbon solid. And then you get two moles of hydrogen gas. 
you take that hydrogen gas and you mix it with oxygen from the air and you make water. That's a fuel cell. And so your only effluent now is water. So overall, those two reactions will put out 400 kilojoules per mole. So it's only half the energy. But you get all that back because the efficiency of normal combustion is 25 to 40%. The efficiency of the two steps is about 70%. So, so of, of the two steps for, for the, the stripping the hydrogens in the fuel cell. So you get it back in efficiency. Thermodynamically, it's half, but in reality, it's about the same amount of energy out. Human beings blow out 30 billion tons a year of CO2. That would be 8 billion tons of solid carbon. What are you going to do with 8 billion tons of solid carbon? Well, we can make it into graphene. If you put that graphene in cement and concrete, cement and concrete uh, are produced in 44 million tons per year. Uh, I'm sorry, 44,000 million tons, which is 44 billion tons. Uh, where are you going to put 8 billion tons of carbon? Where well, you can put in 44 billion tons of, of cement and concrete, if you wanted to. But you put it in, in, in uh, building materials of all kinds, uh, and you do all sorts of things with that graphene. And that will lower CO2 emissions enormously. How is this an environmental play? Slide number 14. Go to slide number 15, where you look at the human waste footprint. Uh, 30 to 40 percent of all food is thrown out worldwide. Why is it thrown out? Because it goes bad. And then when that goes into a landfill, it forms not just CO2, it forms methane as well. Methane is a, is a much more severe greenhouse gas than is carbon dioxide. Then there's waste plastic. I mean, huge problems with waste plastic. There's waste rubber tires. The U.S. is pretty good about its waste plastic and waste rubber tires compared to other countries. Uh, we really got the, the waste tires problem figured out, uh, but it's a big problem in, in, in other countries. Well, we can convert all of that into graphene. So if you look in, 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 in slide number 16, it says 170 million tons of plastic waste is generated every year. This is, this is a waterway. People live in, 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 in those things right next door. And, and it, this is, in, in Asia, this is, this is what the waterways can look like. That's the plastic. It's frightening. And then if you go to slide number 17, uh, it shows you a map of the mismanaged plastic waste. And you see U.S. has a very small footprint of mismanaged plastic waste, whereas China, Asia, it is just a huge, huge problem. Uh, uh, and what are you going to do with all this waste plastic? And what happens is it goes into rivers and then it goes into the oceans. Because of the currents, it ends up in the, in the Pacific Ocean. Now, here's the, the life cycle of plastic in the oceans. Uh, a plastic bag will last 20 years. A plastic cup will last 450 years. A diaper, 500 years. A toothbrush, 500 years. I mean, this is a plastic bottle is 450 years. So these are big, big problems in the oceans. Fish, fish, you know, uh, it's a problem when fish ingest these. But it's, there's other problems. There's this plastic vortex, uh, slide number 19, a plastic vortex in the Pacific, bigger than the state of Texas. It's 10 feet thick, and it just kind of hangs out there. And you can tell from the plastic that that a lot of that is, is really coming off of Asia because you, you can look at, at where the plastic was manufactured. Uh, but a lot of it is also nylon fishnets, uh, a lot of fishing gear. Uh, uh, it all kind of wraps up there and gets trapped there and floats around there. It's a big, big problem. And if you go to slide 20, large amounts of plastic waste go into the ocean. And then what it turns out is the plastic decomposes and forms micro and nanoplastics. Is that a problem? Yes. It's a real problem because what happens is there are microbes in the ocean that conveniently for us convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. 
and they use that carbon for, for their life and they, they blow out oxygen for us. That's good. They can react with these micro and nanoplastics to reverse that and they start consuming oxygen and blowing out carbon dioxide and that would be really bad for, for human existence. So these are, these are real problems that we face. Okay, slide number 21 shows all the different types of recyclable plastics. We flash them and they all form beautiful flash graphene. That's a Raman spectrum. Those two peaks are the, that's the G peak and the 2D peak. Uh, uh, and, and then, and then uh, uh, so it's really clean and you can use any of those plastics or you can mix them all together. When you recycle plastic, it has to be pure. You, you have to have a pure plastic stream to do the recycling, or 98%. Uh, here you can have them all mixed together, and that's why recycled plastic costs as much as virgin plastic, because it's the human separation that's involved in separating these. Uh, we can keep it all mixed together, we flash it, it turns, gra turns into graphene, and we do it for much less. So recycled high-density polyethylene is about $2,000 a ton, we can do it for, for uh, uh, about $35 to $40 per ton, something like that. Uh, why, why is it so interesting to upcycle plastic waste? Not recycle, but upcycle. May, make it higher value by turning it into flash graphene by flash dual heating. $35 per ton of, of plastic waste in electricity costs. There's no sorting. There's no pre-washing. Uh, uh, it's unaffected by plasticizers, dyes, adhesives, food waste, organic waste, and inorganic fillers. There's no solvents are needed, no subsequent purification. The graphene is needed, and no va low-value ashes left over. Uh, typical uh, uh, high-density polyethylene is going to be washed three times with detergent and hot water before it can go, go uh, uh, and be uh, uh, reprocessed and, and, and uh, recycled. So we don't have to do any of that because all the organics are just going to burn out and if it's carbon, it's going to turn into graphene anyway. Um, next slide, 23, says end-of-life vehicle plastic. This is a, a paper that's just about to come out. It's, it's coming out in the next week or so. Uh, this is a collaborative work that we did with Ford. So in Europe right now, all lightweight vehicles uh, uh, go back to the auto manufacturer at the end of their life. So you got a 35-year-old Ford. It's handed back to Ford by the governments in the EU after 35 years. Here's your car back. You can only landfill 5% of it. So they've got to recycle, do something with the other 95%. Every lightweight vehicle has 200 to 350 kilograms of plastic in it. And they don't know what to do because a lot of those are engineering plastics that can't be remelted, so they, they're, they're not recyclable. Plus, you get them all mixed together. They come out of this stripping yard. Well, we took that mixed waste plastic, we flashed it, turned it into graphene. We sent it back to Ford. They put it in their composites because if you own a Ford, since February 2020, all Fords have had graphene in them. Uh, they're in the foam cushion seats, under hood insulation. It lightweights the vehicle, and it's going in a lot more now. So we could, uh, we went into their, their composites and worked just fine. Did the sound deadening? So you can see here in the applications of graphene and the polyurethane foams, and, and uh, uh, it did the sound deadening so that the foams absorbed more, more sound just like they thought they would. And, uh, uh, and, and then it also increases the, the, the strength of the material, the Young's modulus, which is the stiffness of the material. 
And so you can use less of the urethane. And, and then it didn't just stop there. Then they sent those, those graphene-containing composites to us. We flashed them again and turned it back into graphene, the whole thing back and all of it back into graphene. And so, you know, this is a never-ending cycle now where we can just keep turning it into graphene. And it, it, it just makes a beautiful environmental story. Next slide is now the CO2 capture on plastic waste. Uh, this is in a company now called uh, H2Blue. And, and uh, so what we can do is now on the slide 26, which is, which is the, uh, you see a little plastic bag there. We just react that with potassium acetate, which is a, it's a really mild reagent, inorganic reagent, or, or potassium salt of an organic, uh, of acetic acid. It's the potassium salt of acetic acid is what it is. And uh, uh, we react those two together, we heat them up together, and we get a porous carbon material. That's the thing in the bottom left. That porous carbon material has pores that are 0.7 nanometers, and that is the perfect size for trapping carbon dioxide. So we can take plastic waste and use it to pull CO2 out. So we take one problem and use it to solve another problem. So if you go to the next slide, slide number 27. So uh, we're really using this right now for flue gas capture. So you have these big power plants and they just blow out. They use the burning, they're burning either coal or the burning natural gas and they blow out CO2 in the process. Well, we want to trap that carbon dioxide and, and then either pump it down whole, where it will be for thousands of years and we don't have to worry about it. And if the CO2 is just sent away for 100 years, that solves the human problem because in 100 years we'll have other sources. We won't be worried about the CO2 problem anymore. But, uh, uh, or you can take it and you can make products out of it. Uh, and so, so uh, uh, that's what we do with this. And so in the next slide, at the bottom, it's all sorts of polymer types, and from this we can, we can do CO2 capture. At one atmosphere, we can, one atmosphere of carbon dioxide, we can trap about 22% by weight CO2 at 0.1 bar, which is 0.1 atmospheres, which is the, the, uh, the partial pressure of carbon dioxide coming out of a smokestack of a, of a power plant. It's mostly mostly uh, uh, nitrogen because you used air to burn it and there's some water in there and uh, it's about 70% humidity and then you've got uh, uh, CO2 at about 10% uh, uh, partial pressure, 0.1 bar partial pressure. And so we get about 7 or 8 percent we can capture at 0.1 bar by weight. And then also in 70% humidity we checked it and, and uh, uh, we can pull the CO2 out and it sticks to it. So that's exactly what that's showing in slide 29. In slide 30, it shows you our cost. Our technology is going to cost about $21 per ton of CO2 that we capture uh, if we use waste heat to release it. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the liquid amines uh, are much more costly than that. That's the technology that's used today. If you go to slide number 31, uh, we estimate our cost at $21 a ton versus what, what the literature said $80 per ton is what liquid amines cost. But now that we're dealing with people in that industry, they say, no, your, your literature's off. It's actually $120 to $160 per ton flue gas capture. And so this could make it much cheaper to, to capture carbon dioxide. 
Uh, we go to slide number 32, and this is work with the University of Calgary, where we're using our <coughs> plastic waste-derived carbon uh, to take CO2 and put it on an electrode surface, and then it blows out ethylene. So it is converted to ethylene in the process. And so you convert carbon dioxide directly into ethylene. And why do you want ethylene? Because then you can make polyethylene. And so you can make materials out of this. So, so uh, uh, that, that has high prospect for the industry. Because if you can take the carbon dioxide, and you don't have to pump it down hole and try to sequester it away. If you can directly convert it into usable products, then you can make money out of this thing. And, and uh, um, we, we can convert this to carbon dioxide and, and uh, so we don't have to compress it because any time you capture CO2, then you, if you take it, you compress it. It costs you energy to compress it. But if you can just directly convert it into, into uh, 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 ethylene, then you see you have a, a truly CO2 negative process. So you, you, you just, just turn this thing around. And if you go to slide number 34, that's the research group. Those are the folks who have done the work. Uh, Awala Algozib, the, the woman in the front, fourth from the right with a star. Uh, she's the one who did this CO2 capture on plastic waste, and she's assisted by Paul uh, 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 Savas, who's the front row, uh, second from the left. And Walla has gone back to Saudi Arabia. She was sent to me for four and a half years by Saudi Aramco, paid for her PhD. And uh, she was just absolutely terrific. I told Saudi Aramco, just send me more women like her. I want Saudi women. She was just tremendous. And then uh, Paul's kind of taken that over. And then the work on the flash graphene is by all the other people there with stars. And with that, I will... I will uh, end and open it up for questions. Thank you so much for this amazing talk about this really cool research and, you know, cool, literally to cool the planet. <laughs> so, <laughs> for once it was um, used appropriately. Um, yeah, no, thank you really so much for explaining this to us in such a a uh, way that uh, even me as a neuroscientist can understand this is amazing. And uh, please flash your microphones, everyone, for questions. Um, and then we'll go from there. So, um, Serena, I saw you flash your microphone. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, fascinating talk. Uh, very impressive numbers about, um, well, price per ton for both the graphene and CO2 capture. Um, so, curious question about the graphene. Um, I, I was, I, I, in terms of scaling that up, um, well, let me first ask, when you characterize the graphene products, um, is there a, a, a fairly well-defined length scale of the sheets in terms of their diameter or? Um, yeah, that's, that's entirely adjustable. So, oh. you know, a lot of times you want smaller ones because they disperse better in medium. But if we, if we run the flash joule heating system for, say, 25 milliseconds, 40 milliseconds in that region, we're going to have small sheets. If we run it for 500 milliseconds, a half a second, 
we will have uh, uh, sheets that are uh, um, 50 microns in size. If we run in a shorter time, we'll have things that, that uh, are sub-micron in size. So it depends on how long you run the flash, and that's entirely controllable by the electronics. That's really cool. Um, so, and it's only timed, uh, you know, growth from the precipitation of the, in a sense, the plasma? Yeah, there's no, it's not a plasma. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we're, 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 we have a, we're driving a direct current through the system. Uh, so, but, but um, uh, when these, these carbons break, all these bonds, and they rearrange, um, if you apply the heat a little bit longer, they have more time to form. And so we're talking differences of, of say, 25 milliseconds to 500 milliseconds. So you have that kind of window. You can run it out for a second if you want to and get even larger sheets, but then it's harder to get them to disperse. But um, uh, uh, when you look at the reaction times, uh, compared to it's, it's really quick. It's all sub-second. <laughs> and the electronics turn it on and turn it off so rapidly. And your, your, your heat rate, is, it's 10 to the 5th Kelvin per second up, and the cool rate is 10 to the 4th Kelvin down. And mm -hmm. so, so you run this, and even that, that, that quartz tube around it uh, is only warm to the touch after the reaction because it's been so fast that there's been little, very little heat transfer out. So it's not like heating a big furnace. We drive all of that energy into the material. So in terms of, is there a, um, you repeat cycle it, you prepare it and clear it somehow and, and keep running yeah, the yeah, reaction? Yeah, it's like, like a piston comes in and forces mm -hmm. it out. Another piston pushes in more material and boom, flash again. So, so it's, it's sort of like, uh, and then you've got several of these firing at once, sort of like a revolver, cylinder on a revolver, and you, you know, and, and they're they're coming in, they're firing, and and each each flash is 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 a second or less, and then a piston comes and and, and drives it out. Okay, I had some other questions, but I want to let other people um, on stage uh, get a chance to to ask their questions. So uh, toward the end, I'll come back. Okay. And can I jump in here? Yes, hi, Dan. Welcome. Sure. Let me make sure you can hear me. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, very interesting to hear about this. And I think having something that produces a valuable product while it's capturing CO2, that's always a win-win, and that's a great uh, thing. I would just uh, comment, you mentioned uh, the cost is less than uh, liquid amine, amine uh, flue gas capture, and that's, I'm sure, sure that's true, but liquid amine is sort of a, a you know, past generation uh, approach, and the next generation uses solid sorbents, and that's about, uh, you know, depending on the, on the volume, about $50 a ton, but that includes all the energy costs, and you mentioned if we can use waste heat, which is basically saying if we can have our energy for free, and sometimes you can do that. And, and if you did that, then I think the, the traditional, well, I'll call it traditional, still next generation solid sorbent carbon capture would cost about the same as what you're, as what you're proposing. But again, yeah, that, but, that, but if I could point out the difference, though, the, yeah. the difference is that, uh, let me go back to that slide. So, which I, I so if you, it's, it's slide number 30. If you look at the plot on the right, we can drive off the material at 75 degrees C. 
So liquid amine is about 125 to 140 C. Most systems are at least on the carbon materials are around 110 C. 75 is waste heat accessible for many industries. 110 is not yeah. waste heat accessible. So well, that, that, that's the for, difference. Uh, most of, well, again, if you're maybe targeting different things here, you're doing plastic re, you know, recycling or upcycling. Uh, the carbon capture is targeted towards uh, industrial emissions like cement and steel, where the temperatures are you know, 1,500 degrees and the waste heat is in that. Hundred, yes. you know, yeah, hundred, hundred fifty degrees. Yes. It's a different thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. we need it for everything. So, yeah. you know, there'll be niches for for uh, large niches for everything. And again, I think if you're generate if you're making a product that's less expensive than the traditional way of making the product, and on top of that, you're doing carbon capture. I mean, that's that's a pretty good thing because the other kind of carbon capture, even at twenty five dollars, that's that's just a cost, right? There's no in fact, you still have to either put it underground or turn it to stone. So there's, you know, that cost too. So anyway, it sounds pretty cool. So I want to say that. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, please go ahead, ask your questions. Eli, did you want to ask a question? Dr. Shah, Nice, uh, go ahead. Pamela, I saw you joined the stage. Um, Katie, to see or him. Oh, Dennis. Yeah, go ahead. So I was curious. Number one, this is a very hopeful technology for me, having studied environmental science um, and not seeing <laughs> enough innovation and sufficient uh, quickness to get to where we need to be in terms of making sure the planet is not completely destroyed shortly. So I was curious uh, when um, when you project this sort of approach to be standardized and mm -hmm. for us to be producing in this fashion, given mm -hmm. it's more efficient than current standards. Yeah. So we discovered the, the flash jewel heating in August of 2018. We started the company about, about uh, a little less than a year after that. And they've been working on the scaling uh, uh, for a couple, of two and a half years now, something like that, 2019, yeah, something like that. And so, um, like I said, they sh they're targeting a ton a day. Uh, I'll, I'll, they're targeting a ton a day by the end of this year. Um, they had some setbacks because of the facility that they were going to move into. Turned out they couldn't move into it, but... That's why I'm saying the end of this year rather than the end of this summer. They'll be doing a ton a day and then 100 tons a day after that. That's in a single plant. Um, that company has gotten over $30 million in grants, uh, so, which is non-diluted, which is really nice. Um, and it's really taken off. It is, it is greatly oversubscribed. Um, and so many, many investors want to come in. Many, in, in, in fact, there are nations that want to invest in that. So they're all seeing the, the potential of this thing. Flash jewel heating has never been a scaled technology, and that's why, that's why uh, uh, it's just taking a little while. Uh, but they should have that, that uh, pilot facility at a ton a day by the end of this year. So that kind of gives you a time frame and then 100 tons a day after that. 
That's, they're going to be running off of a high carbon product like coal or petroleum coke, uh, 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 calcined petroleum coke, uh, because that's 90% carbon. And if you go in with, with a kilo of, of um, uh, something like metallurgical coke, you come out with nine, 900 grams of graphene, and 100% of the material in that is graphene because you have a little bit of hydrogen and oxygen in that. But if you go in with plastic, depends what type of plastic, but you can only get out as much as the carbon that was in there. The rest is going to come out as, as uh, water or, or uh, uh, NO, NO2. Uh, um, so, so these other elements are going to come out. So that, that's, it's a little bit harder with those, uh, but that'll be phase two. So with the, just the production is going to happen with, with uh, uh, the high carbon materials. But you probably know this, that, that um, uh, materials, to, to have materials, a new materials development and have it on the market generally takes decades, generally takes decades to do that. And um, uh, I, I can give you a, a quote from Intel uh, because they told me this uh, specifically. When they develop, when they have a system that's working pretty well in their laboratory, till the time they're selling it is eight years. So that's, that's what we look at in the materials world. Something working pretty well in a lab till the time they're selling it. And that is in a very aggressive company, Intel. So when I'm talking about a timeline of, say, three and a half to four years, where you'll be doing a ton a day, that's actually very fast. And then five years, 100 tons a day. So this is a technology that's moving a lot faster than the vast majority of materials uh, companies that are out there. So under those conditions, um, how long would it take for that to, to displace all of the other production methods? Uh, uh, production methods of graphene? I think it's going to displace, displace them pretty fast. And the reason is, is price. I mean, if, if you look at our cost for making it versus the cost of doing it other ways, it's going to be hard to compete. Uh, I think they're going to be displaced really quickly. I think, you know, if, 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 you're a, if you're a man who likes to work in stocks, short those companies, I would think, is what you'd want to do when this starts really coming online. Um, Duly noted. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, be, be, and it, it, it's, it's just going to be totally driven by price. And, and I don't know what the company, I'm not an officer or director, I don't know what price point they're going to come in at, but uh, um, uh, uh, there are companies that... that pay enormous amounts of, for graphene, like Ford. Ford buys a lot of graphene. Uh, I don't know what their price is, uh, but we're probably talking many tens of thousand dollars per ton. And, and uh, uh, they will make a switch very quickly when it becomes uh, largely available uh, at, a, at a cheaper price. Fantastic answers. Thank you. Um, I have more, but I want to leave some room for others to ask as well. Yeah, thank you so much, James. I mean, for fascinating work. My question from you is about the uh, turbostatic graphene, and we know about the, I mean, modifying of the electronic properties that we can find in this type of graphene. 
and you specifically mentioned about the using of that in electronic and optical devices. I was just wondering, does the I'm sorry, I, I, I lost you there. Sorry, did I cut off? Can you hear me now? Yes, I, yes, I yeah. can hear you now. Now you're gone again. I'm sorry. I can't hear you right now. You're out again. Uh, I don't know. It's... You can hear me or not? Now I can. At this instant, I can. I'm not sure I'll be able to. So let me be fast. Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I want to know that the, uh, I mean, the property of the turbostatic, I mean, specifically by considering optic devices, optical devices, going to yeah. change or not? Right. So I, I, I think that this is not going to be the best thing for optical devices. I think for optical devices, what you're going to want is you're going to want CVD-grown graphene on a copper surface and then that transferred to where you want. I think that that's what you're going to want with an optical device. And then if you want bilayer, you're going to want to be able to have that twisted at a particular angle because uh, um, you can... you. Optically, you can have them coupled or decoupled depending on the twist angle, as you probably know. And so, so I, I think that, that for optical devices, you're going to grow that differently. We have another process called laser-induced graphene for patterning graphene. That's really good for patterned devices. Uh, 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 for, it's just laser-scribed, laser uh, and it, you write out patterns very quickly. That's laser-induced graphene. This is more for bulk applications. Uh, uh, composites, films, paints, going, in, going in, into uh, aluminum, going into plastics, going into, for example, you, you take this, you add 1% of this by weight in asphalt road triples the life, triples the life of the asphalt road. That's a very big deal. Um, uh, uh, this has enormous consequences of putting it in, in, in concrete roads uh, 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 for, for uh, extending the life of the road, uh, bridges, for those applications, I think that that's where you would use this flash graphene material. Thank you so much. Okay. So I was slow to the mic earlier. Um, I wondered if you could elaborate a bit on the um, catalytic reduction of carbon dioxide to ethylene. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that's, that's a process, like I said, with the University of Calgary and uh, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the researcher's name is Kimbria and he, he, it is his catalyst system, it is a copper catalyst system and, and that is a process that's patented by the University of Calgary but it turns out that our capture material is the best material he's ever put on his surface. And so that, that really upped it for him. So our contribution there is not the catalyst system. Our contribution is just the, the plastic-derived uh, uh, um, carbon capture material. And, uh, and, then it, and then the conversion to ethylene. And the next slide showed, uh, it was slide number 33, showed the bare catalyst, the, the ethylene production versus the catalyst with the plastic waste derived uh, carbon on it, and you can see how, how it went up from, uh, 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 there was about 30%, 32% Faradaic efficiency to 50% Faradaic efficiency. Um, uh, so, 
so um, yeah, yeah. That that's. I guess that's all I know. Yeah, I think the the forty percent uh, uh, Faradayic efficiency to hydrogen is worth noting at the same time. Yeah. Yes, that's valuable. I did have another question about the um, the conditions. I don't know if you can can tell us about the conditions for the porous material you use, the potassium acetate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. We we published that, so so that's all open now. Um, mm -hmm. So what we do is we take potassium acetate and uh, post-consumer high-density polyethylene. You, you can use high-density polyethylene, uh, low-density polyethylene, polypropylene, uh, and or mixtures of those, and we mix those two in a bray bray blend bray bender. So so we'll melt the, the uh, high-density polyethylene and blend that in with the potassium acetate. And then we put that in a furnace and we heat it up to, to 600 degrees. At that temperature, you do not get potassium metal formation. Potassium metal formation occurs at 750. So we don't have to worry about that at all. And the potassium acetate converts to potassium carbonate. So at the end of the reaction, we rinse with water and the potassium carbonate comes out, which, which uh, actually uh, in the United States, potassium carbonate uh, uh, has higher value than potassium acetate, interestingly enough. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's because potassium carbonate is used, used by oil companies in, 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 uh, in enhanced oil recovery. So, so um, that, that you get back. And you also get a lot of uh, uh, um, waxes, oils, and, and, and alpha olefins. And then we get about 15% about of that, 15, 17% of that uh, plastic that went in comes out as the porous carbon material. So the yield is only 15 to 17%. But number one, that's not optimized. Number two, there's a whole lot of waste plastic, so so uh, that that people that that is is unsorted, and so it's the cost of that is very low to get, or people will even give it to you, just to get rid of it. And 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 all of those hydrocarbon streams that come off have value. You know, there's there's six or eight uh, uh, plastic pyrolysis companies in the world that all they do is heat plastic. And, and, and get out these smaller molecules and sell those. It goes into lubricants and things like that. But here, you get out an ash, a carbon residue, that has very high value for CO2 capture. Uh, and it all happens because of the potassium acetate. And potassium acetate's fairly unique with this. We've tried a lot of different, we looked at lithium acetate, sodium acetate, we looked at uh, potassium carbonate and many different things, but Potassium acetate is kind of special. Well, that's amazing. You said the pore size is about 0.7 nanometers? Correct. Yeah. Um, you, if, go ahead. As, sorry, were you done? I'm sorry, I didn't want to. Yeah, I'm good. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask, is there an initiative, or do you think that um, because there 
you know, it's a goal to um, to keep carbon at a specific rate of developed countries, especially. Um, do you think it will uh, create um, an industry that uh, will try to um, harvest plastic out of the ocean and different places in order to supply this as a raw material for this technology? Is there, do you know of incentives, incentives of this that would create basically this, um, yeah, this market that would incentivize this behavior of, you know, yeah. cleaning I don't think up? You, I don't think you need to go to the middle of the Pacific to get this. There's so much high-density polyethylene, low-density polyethylene, and polypropylene around. Uh, there's no lack of that, and so you don't have to go anywhere to get that. That's all around us, and uh, Waste Management Incorporated is here in Houston. Uh, they get they get so much of this, and then it's it's sorted out, and then it goes to the the recyclers from there. Uh, so it's all around us, and so it's easy to get that. I think that there will definitely be incentives, and just like we pay a fee every time we buy a rubber tire. That really changed the industry. The U.S. is really good. We don't have, we don't have mountains of rubber tires around. The rest of the world does because you pay up front. I don't know what the fee is, something like $5 or $3 per tire that you buy is you pay up front. And so all of that money is there to make sure that those rubber tires are properly disposed of. Um, the same thing I think is probably going to happen with plastic to really force us to to deal with that plastic, that so there'll be the money there to deal with it, and and that will be there to help to push this along, just like I think a carbon tax is coming. I'm not saying that I'm in favor of this or I'm not in favor of this. I'm just saying, I think it's coming, and and a carbon tax is going to come, and every industry is going to be looking to to uh, to do this, and I think companies like like Universal Matter, like H2 Blue, will make a lot of money off of carbon credits as well, uh, where people will have to buy into this uh, uh, to offset what they're doing. Have you started to see the, um, the, uh, the business aspects of the entrenched processes start to lobby and or resist or I mean these 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 are very impressive numbers and so that's gonna be displacing some established business models and yeah. no 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 because I, I haven't seen it I mean I when I present this at, at like give seminars on this I can see people who have other graphene processes I can kind of see sadness in their eyes as I'm presenting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and some of these are my friends. So, so, you know, but this is just a fact of life that, and, and, but, um, I don't think we're, we're, we're yet on their radar screen. You know, when I'm talking about a ton a day, even a hundred tons a day, this is, this is small numbers to the plastics industry. But it's the plastics industry, actually, is, we've talked with several of them. They're really interested in this. I, I can tell you, ExxonMobil is signed on with us. I mean, because they, they make a lot of plastics and they got to deal with these plastics. So I haven't seen them want to fight us. I've seen them want to, want to join with us, actually. I've seen them want to, 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 to come alongside. And then there's a, the, the Westlake group here in Houston. It's a huge 
plastics producer, polyethylene, polypropylene. And, uh, and I, know, I know it very well because the, the family that owns it is the Chow family, and I'm the TT and WF Chow professor of chemistry, and so they support my chair. Um, and they're very interested in this. They, it's, it's, it's just not the numbers yet that, where they say they're ready for this. We've got to be able to increase capacity uh, because they just make so much of this. But I, I, think, I think they're very excited. And, and then also when I showed you that energy play where you, instead of combusting methane, you, you uh, uh, make it into solid carbon and use a fuel cell. Uh, the yeah, Rice now Rice, yeah, Rice University has what's called a carbon hub. Uh, signed on to this now is ExxonMobil, Shell, and Saudi Aramco. Those are the three big ones that are already signed on to this. They believe in this. They're working on it themselves. And uh, so I actually think that that's coming because they, they are more frightened of what's happening to hydrocarbons than, than, than anybody else because they think their business is going away. And this, this is uh, hydrocarbons for energy. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, I've, I've studied all sorts of energy. I have a battery company. I know electrochemistry very well. There is nothing like an oil well where you have a 14-inch hole in the ground. The amount of energy, natural gas and oil, that comes out of that is utterly enormous. The footprint of that is very, very small compared to other things that you need above surface. And so if you can take that natural gas, which we have so much, I mean, in West Texas, you just go out, they just flare it because the, the, the oil has so much more value and they just flare it rather than ship it to market because it, it, it's, it's cheaper just to flare it. And, and uh, if you can take that and, and convert that to hydrogen with no CO2 formation in the process and just get a solid carbon and then use it in the fuel cell, they will do that. They will definitely do that. So I, I see them signing on and not fighting this thing. So that's interesting. So those, those oil companies you mentioned, this is an entry into the hydrogen economy for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you know as well as I do, batteries, bat, batteries are just an energy transfer for mechanism. There, there is no, it, 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 it's, it's not a fuel. Electricity, batteries are just an energy transfer. Mm -hmm. A fuel is something you can put in a bottle and hydrogen is a great fuel because that only goes to water mm -hmm. when you're done. That's fascinating. Um, air liquid is another uh, hydrogen. I guess they have a, their own process, so they would be a competitor for this, right? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think that they, they're going to end up making a lot of money on this type of technology. In fact, I was in a meeting today with a representative from air liquid, so I think they're watching this. Really fascinating. Yeah, especially given the especially given the ESG scores, the environmental scores that recently got Tesla out of that ranking. Uh, it's about investment and the future, so it's definitely exciting. Yes, from what I understand, uh, in the last nine months, this this ESG is absolutely have to look at this for any investment now. When does your company go public? <laughs> uh, well, Universal Matter, Universal Matter uh, uh, probably won't go public for a while because it has all the money it's, it, it, it needs right now. 
Uh, it'll probably do another financing round, a, a small round in, in uh, I don't know, probably in the new year, just beginning of the new year. And, but it, it's getting so much free money through grants from the U.S. and Canada right now. Um, that's non-dilutive. So the CEO of the company has a lot of stock in the company, so he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's uh, you know, free money is always the best money. Uh, may I ask a question? Yes. Uh, yeah, thanks. I uh, uh, really appreciate this. Uh, very impressive, uh, very exciting uh, research and the prospect of the application market. And, I mean, the impact on the uh, econ uh, climate and economy. So I'm, I have a, 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 a more practical question uh, because I'm, I worked with uh, uh, plast uh, engineering with, uh, on the uh, uh, plastics as, as well with the 3D printing. I'm very uh, intrigued by the uh, one slides, I guess slides number seven that I, uh, your collaborator showed uh, uh, device. And is that the, so, uh, it will be fantastic if we, we uh, uh, can scale up from laboratory to in industry, right? So the, here, the, in this slide, is basically uh, showing, is it, uh, uh, get, uh, did I get that right? The uh, process is automated uh, feeding uh, the stocks to uh, using a 3D printer. And then uh, is the light a strobe light or the flash is no, the strobe or is the, the, the flash is the conversion. During the conversion of the, the coal to the graphene, there's a lot of black body radiation, yes. and that's the flash of light, the black body radiation. But that scale up, that automation was for laboratory scale only. Industrially, it's not it's not built on 3D parts like that, 3D printed parts. It is it is a much bigger industrialized system, uh, and and the, the 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 type of configuration that they have is proprietary, but. Um, uh, that that was just the laboratory scale up, going from the the one up type thing to the 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 mechanized system, which we needed to deliver on the DoD. But but the the commercial system's not based on that. Sure. So yeah. So that essentially there's some kind of a synchronization with the uh, the flash and the the, the belt that uh. uh conveying yeah. the uh, feeding the yeah. material. It, so it, just it, try to get the basic it's a idea. Bunch of pistons. Yeah essentially, yep. and, and uh, uh, they're driving in carbon, pressing it down, the piston acts as the electrode, boom, it flashes, then the piston pushes it back out and more carbon feeds in. So uh, another uh, related question, the, 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 is, uh, would it be uh, a, a, a future improvement if we able to uh, target the uh, energy input uh, more pre precisely or in, in a confinement way or I mean right now it's uh, more uh, on heating or by electricity it's all electricity the, uh, towards we, we, the... we just published a paper recently on using uh, AI machine learning uh, so there, there's there's like 10 different parameters dials that we can turn and and so with AI we can we can key in quite quickly on particular parameters that we want. If the customer wants bigger sheet graphene, smaller sheet graphene, 
Uh, we, if they want dopants in it, we know how to dope it. Uh, we just recently published a paper on doped flash graphene, boron, sulfur, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, oxygen. Um, so, so we know how to do that. And then, then with the AI, it depends on what your source material is coming in. And so you do a quick assessment on the source coming in and then a few shots and, and it'll, it'll parameterize and quickly give you the optimized flash for those particular conditions. So I, I think that this is gonna be just hooked up to, to a machine learning system and that'll optimize depending on what you want coming out the other end. Wow, that's exciting. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, I'm very looking forward to, you know, reading Dive Deep uh, with a reference yeah, so and maybe on, uh, on, if I have some more questions, okay, I'll ask on you. Okay, on my website, which is jmtour.com, jm for Mitchell, jmtour.com. Uh, if you look under the publications tab, uh, then you can see the, all our publications and just look under the ones that, that you know, mention the flash process and you can you can just click on them right there. Great, thank you. Just uh, uh, if I made the last one. So the cost, some some costs also incurred in the uh, extraction of the after the burning process. Right? So that that's that's uh, the, the solvent. I mean that that can contribute a lot. All right. In, so I don't cost. know what you mean by extraction after the burning. So after the flash, everything that's not carbon sublimes out. The 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 sublimation point of carbon is. 3,600 Kelvin. Silicon is about 2,800 Kelvin. Aluminum is 2,700 Kelvin, somewhere in there. So all the, all the heteroatoms sublime out. All that's left is carbon. Once we flash, that material is 100% graphene. We've done Raman maps. We can get it to 100% graphene. There is no purification after that. The piston just is pushing out pure graphene. Well, you know, thanks for, for that uh, clarification. I misunderstood that part. Thank you. Okay. You, you mentioned doping. I was, um, you, so you're at, you're at 3000 Celsius. Right. I'm, I was really curious how you, what the, uh, could you say a little bit more about the you know, boron phosphate? Yeah, yeah. So, so we, 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 can, we can flash it. And what we do is we either do a shorter flash, and that's what we published on. That paper came out. In the last month, the, the boron, the, the, the heteroatom doped graphene. Um, so that's all published already. Uh, but we have another process that, that uh, other ways that we can do this. But yeah, we, we can do this so you do a quick flash because if you flash it a little bit longer, a lot of those heteroatoms are going to come out. Uh, but if you, if you put a lot of that material in there and then you flash it for a short amount of time, you can trap some of those in there. So we can get. Uh, I think we've we've gotten like eight percent, ten percent boron, something like that. So it's a lot more than just a typical electronics level dopant. I'm talking about uh, uh, several percent to tens of percents of of several of these. Uh, and we've made mixed. You know, we've put like boron, nitrogen, and we we just published a paper, or we'll have a paper coming out shortly where we've made not just graphene, we've, we've made boron nitride this way, uh, uh, we've made boron carbide this way. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of permutations that mm. you, you can come with with this. 
and this just being the flash, um, just flashing it, it's flashing for, it for controlled mm -hmm. times. And, That's and amazing. No, no solids, have, have you yeah. been able to? Yeah, have you been able to measure diode activity? Oh. Diode activity. Well, so in terms of doping it, do you oh, get? Oh, oh. Uh, no, we haven't done too much electronically with it. We, we've characterized it as far as uh, uh, the heteratom, heteratom mapping by TEM. Uh, um, but no, we haven't put it into electronic devices. That, that, that would be, yeah, yeah that, that, that would be an obvious mm -hmm. thing to do. Our next step is we're going to put it into concrete. I'll tell you, when you when we have boron doping in there or nitrogen doping, the interfacial interaction between the concrete and the, the graphene is going to mm -hmm. be much higher than when it was straight graphene. And I think it's going to mm -hmm. be far superior. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I'll look for that. Thank you. Yeah, I think we've gone an, over an hour, yeah. an hour 15 minutes. I wanted to check with you. Um, I, I, yeah, you know, we probably we, want to begin to wrap it up. And uh, yeah. uh, we've, cause yeah. we've, we've published a lot on this now. And so people could go to my website and look up the papers and, and uh, just click and the papers will come right up. Yep. Um, and um, again, uh, check out also the YouTube channel. Uh, let me share it again. Uh, look out for more information and videos um, there. Let me post the link again. Um, check out Dr. James Tours um, YouTube video uh, channel and um, follow it. <laughs> And um, yeah, thank you so much uh, for taking so much time and for uh, presenting your amazing work and um, for answering so many questions. Uh, it was a great honor having you here. Please uh, feel free to always come back. Um, I hope you enjoyed it and that we'll see you or hear you back one day in the future again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for that talk, Dr. True. That my mind is blown by what you've just um, described to me now. This is so exciting. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Okay. Thank you. And thanks for this. Yeah, just, I just, just want to give a final thanks and um, I'll check out your Origin of Life video. I'm sure I'll have some responses. Yes, sure. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Tour. Okay, thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Tour. Bye. Thank you very much. And yeah, thank you everyone for coming and asking questions um, and for being part of this um, discussion and to for everyone in the audience. And um, if you like rooms like this, um, follow the Science Society. We will have um, guest speakers coming. Uh, tomorrow we will have um, in the morning, actually, at 9 a.m. EST, uh, Dr. Morrissey, and he will talk about a new human lung cell type he discovered and how you can use um, that knowledge maybe in the future for curing uh, lung-related disorders, also COVID-related. Um, so it's tomorrow at 9 a.m. EST, and then we'll have uh, Dr. McGuire coming. Uh, from MIT and he will talk about complex molecules 
that he discovered that were never seen before in space and we'll have on Friday a room again uh, about the researcher that's trying to save the bees, the honeybees, and he created a varroa-resistant uh, honeybee um, uh, variety uh, to save our bees. So, um, yeah, uh, come back. Thank you for coming, and thanks everyone for asking questions, and I hope to hear you all back soon. Thanks, Katerina. Thank you. Thank you, Katerina. Good night, everybody. Thanks. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Good night. Thanks, everyone.